The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. I'm Hugh Muir. On today's podcast, it's all going on at the Beeb, a revamp for iPlayer with exclusive content and a new interface. BBC Three shunted online. And now BBC Four could be for the chop. Charter renewals on the horizon, but does the BBC give too much ground? Plus, Getty's photography goes free on the web. And reviews of astronauts live in space and Shetland. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And in the studio today, we have Matt Deegan, creative director of media consultancy Folder Media and owner of Fun Kids Radio. I want to work on Fun Kids Radio. You're more than welcome. (laughs) Matt, it's been 25 years of the web this week. What site has caught your eye recently? Oh, God, that's a question. Well, I think that's one of the things with the internet, isn't it? It's constantly developing and our attention spans are short. So what do you say? (laughs) (laughs) So um, are we bothered about websites anymore? Is it all about mobile? Are we all just Snapchatting? Does it matter that the the web still exists? And what's your favourite moment? What have you been looking at? So I've been looking at parislemon.com, which is the website of M.G. Siegler. He used to write for TechCrunch. Um, Now he uh, is a venture capitalist. But he's got his Tumblr, and he sort of, it's a combination of bits that he sort of used to write or that he's known for writing um, alongside other things that he spots. But it's a really good insight into what's happening in in Silicon Valley. Okay, and also with us on the line from a country house in Myford, in Powers is Guardian and Observer reporter Maggie Brown. Maggie, a country house, is that, is that how you roll? That's your kind of thing, is it? <laughs> well, my husband has a share of a farm up here, so we've been counting fallen trees, I think. Sorry to pull you away from that, but thanks for joining us. Uh, let's start with the BBC this week. Of course, Director General Tony Hall launched a revamped iPlayer with a new look and announcements on exclusive content. It's not the first time the players featured premieres of BBC shows, and we'll be reviewing some of those later in this podcast, but these are of a much higher profile. Frankie Boyle returns to the corporation with a new comedy. No doubt he'll dedicate that to his critics at the Mail. And filmmaker and blogger Adam Curtis will present a trilogy of polemical documentaries, and that's the bit I'm looking forward to. I think there's God and there's Adam Curtis, but there's not much in between them. Uh, Matt, you've looked at the digital strategy for the Beeb. Uh, take us through what they're thinking. Well, they want iPlayer to be the front door to the BBC. That's what Tony Hall's described it as. Uh, moving away from catch-up to looking at more content and making that more of a destination site. I think some of this is coming from everyone's use of Netflix and Love Film, uh, where people are going to these places to seek out content. They don't necessarily know what they're going to watch. You know, they'll, they'll drop onto that homepage and think, oh, yeah. hey, I've got 40 minutes, so I'll watch this. So I think it's the BBC's desire to move away from that. Um, obviously, this has a, a connection to BBC Three's move uh, to iPlayer. I think some of these specials are good. I think probably if you look to the actual percentage of budget applied to these compared to the rest of the corporation, it's very, very small. And I also think there is a question about um, is that interfering with the commercial market a bit? If they commission and make telly that just sits sits online, um, is, is that competing with those Amazon streaming services and, and Netflix? Maggie, it's all about the money really, isn't it? And of course, not everyone has access to broadband. So they're in a position now of uh, having to pay the license fee, but there being BBC content that they can't access. Well, interestingly, um, Ofcom have just this morning come up with figures which show that super fast broadband, which is what you really need to enjoy TV on, on 
other devices, is now available in 73% of homes. That's a very big jump from 60% at uh, the end of 2011. So, and 83% of homes now actually have broadband. So the gap is narrowing the whole time. So I'm not so worried about that as I might have been. The thing I think about this, this new menu, really, of, of programming is that clearly the BBC is, I think it's a rights aspect of this. It, it can offer this uh, content. Uh, it's made specially for the iPlayer, so uh, it, it can be there for longer. One of the, the offerings is, is looking at the Tate's Matisse exhibition, which is coming up this spring. All of this makes, I think, good sense for people who want to go a bit deeper or have an interesting uh, and the kind of web-based experience, because after all, those are, uh, those are basically pictures that you'll be looking at. I, I like um, you, um, you are, um, I'm certainly interested in Adam Curtis and uh, remember his programs like The Power of Nightmares. I'm just a bit bemused why those musings have to be just on the iPlayer, when I would have thought Adam Curtis belongs fully on BBC Two. The iPlayer is hugely successful and has been ever since its launch in 2007. This is a new iteration. I, I, I would have thought that um, anything that improves the iPlayer has to be a good thing. Well, of course, both Tony Hall and Director of Television Danny Cohen have been on the front foot over the axing of BBC Three. That's, of course, going wholly online. And it's scheduled to happen in autumn 2015, although Cohen has said he would have preferred it to happen in about five years from now. In an interview with Five Live, he also suggested it may not be the only station to go. BBC4 might be up for the chop if the charter renewal negotiations don't go the broadcaster's way. Lots of politics folded into that, so who better to bring in at this moment than The Guardian's assistant editor, Michael White. Michael, this whole thing, as I say, is absolutely entangled in politics. Do you think the BBC is handling the political element of it very well? Well, I think Tony Hall, who's after all a BBC suit of long-standing, went off to the Opera House, great success in that absolute viper's nest of the Royal Opera House, came back. On paper, he ought to be a disaster, but so far as I can see, he's not. He seems to be very shrewd. So, yeah, I think uh, getting on the front foot this week, getting rid of BBC3 as a broadcast uh, medium. Uh, don't forget how hard the government has been in budgetary terms, uh, frozen licence fee, and then dumping the cost of the World Service off the Foreign Office budget uh, back onto the Beeb. Quite tough times. Uh, that's they- the point, though, isn't it? Given that the government will do what the government will do, the BBC needs to have quite a good political operation of its own to make sure that it's not buffeted by all the, the storms from Westminster, doesn't it? Well, it's got to do two things, really. One, it's got to not make mistakes either of a commercial kind or grandiose buildings which then are sold off or found to be useless and not making political mistakes uh, of the kind which cause great offence to uh, the government or more to the point to the government supporters which of course include the Daily Mail which is always on its case and the Murdoch Press always on its case too. So it's pretty tricky and um, it does make mistakes but at the moment I feel positive. I mean, James Purnell, the director of strategy there, has issued the their opening gambit, which is arguing for a license fee settlement linked to inflation. Um, is that good strategy? Well, it's an opening gambit. As you say, Purnell's a former Labour cabinet minister. There is a perception of bias, and John Humphreys touched upon it in his interview with the Radio Times. It would be the Radio Times saying, you know, it tends to be metropolitan and secular and liberal and pro-European elitist. And the appointments of people like Purnell, and there have been several of them, get picked on. So there's a risk there. But we'll see just how good a negotiator and strategist Purnell is. This is a big test for him. He's only been a cabinet minister up to now. This is the real world. And what are they up against? How much love it actually is there for the BBC in Westminster? 
Well, there is always a tension with the politicians, as there is in every broadcast system in the world. Prime Minister of Australia, a hooligan, has just launched a tremendous attack on ABC, and it happens routinely in the US, where I used to live. So that's good for there to be tension, is you want the broadcaster not to make mistakes and make it easy for the kind of people who are deeply illiberal, in the, in the better sense of the word, and, you know, would do harm. And, of course, the funding formula is under perhaps most pressure because of evolving technology. Matt, make sense of, of this for me. Matt, Michael talked about the technology. Streaming BBC Three is actually going to cost more than broadcasting. So how are they going to save any money by doing that? Uh, it's really hard to look at the numbers because, number one, uh, BBC Three is not going to have anywhere near the volume of consumption that it does in the broadcast world. Uh, people are going to watch stuff on demand. And actually, people are going to watch the BBC Three segments that will now appear on BBC One and BBC Two. Uh, and yeah, it's a little bit of a con saying that we're moving BBC Three to iPlayer. Uh, yes, there will be a BBC Three branded zone which will exist on iPlayer and on broadcast telly as well uh, with its massively reduced budget 25 million quid rather than uh, 80 million quid i mean really this is a strategic gamble by the bbc to say to the government right we've done it now no more salami slicing if you load any more crap on us um, or you try and cut our budgets we will turn off services and what they'll play now is between now and september there'll be a public response to, to the bbc3 closure which won't win but there will be a large there will be a large one and they will hold that up and they say look we've gone as far as we can now that's a that's a brave gamble to make because this probably that you know we know that there still is some uh, salami slicing and some cuts you can make within the bbc as a, a 3.2 billion pound organization uh, but this is their gamble they've said we've shut bbc3 challenge us again the thing you like bbc4 will go and then we'll dive into more stuff yesterday james Pennell said uh, on this um the licence fee moving to being a civil offence, if that cost us £200 million, well, that's CBBC, CBBS and BBC4 that goes. Their language now is any challenges, we're going to turn things off. And that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous game to play. This is high-stakes stuff, isn't it? And Maggie, what, what are the independent programme makers thinking about this? Because it's all very well for the politicians and for the head people at the BBC to, to engage in these high-stakes gambles. But if you're, you actually make programmes, you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, that's less money for me, that's less opportunity for me. Well, there's going to be clearly a, a great deal of lobbying. And there is lobbying already started. There's been a massive uh, response both um, online, on Twitter, in the uh, on, online world, and also increasingly in just plain forward petitions. So I wouldn't assume that uh, BBC Three is going to close. I think we've seen reversals in the past. What I would say is that the BBC, before it starts cutting programmes and services further, needs to reassure both politicians and the public that it is managed absolutely immaculately and is not wasting money. And this uh, cry has already gone up from John Whittingdale, the um, chairman of the Culture Media Sport Committee in Parliament. And I think that this is going to be one of the uh, dominant themes in the debate ahead, because very few people believe that the BBC is managed in an optimal manner. And you could look across to ITV, where there is a very professional management team in place, and see the turnaround that's taken place over the last four years, from being a bit of a basket case to being uh, a very good example of, of a modernizing uh, old media company. And there, there are bound to be questions asked about this. As for uh, threatening to saber-rattling, really, shroud-waving, closing services, um, it is a dangerous strategy to follow. And I, I would h hope that 
for example, people examining the license fee case will ask questions about the formation of new households, how many more license fees the BBC can expect from a growing population with clearly a big house building programme one way or another going to happen. So there are factors here which need to be included in a debate about the level of the license fee. Maggie, thanks for that. Of course, there's a a question in Wednesday's Daily Mail and it really does need answering. uh, Relating to the license fee, they they ask, do people need to go to jail for the BBC? Michael, would you go to jail for the BBC? In the right circumstances, I would. I, I, I know the BBC quite well as an outsider. I worked for it for years. Not much anymore. The age police come and round you up once you're over 60. But nonetheless, I am often infuriated by it. But I love it. And I admire it, even even in its uh, heroic failure. But uh, everything uh, Matt and Maggie said, all lots of valid points there. I, I like the idea of household fragmentation generating uh, new license revenues. I hadn't thought of that. But oh, they are very... Trick. It's a big trick that John Burke pulled uh, yeah. when he made an extremely good settlement with the government uh-huh. back in 1999-2000. Uh, yeah, well, he was a great—he was a great suit. Less satisfactory as a creative, if I remember. The, the BBC is just very vulnerable, and it's vulnerable to changing habits and to technology and to the pressure of the marketeers, the people who want to make a buck out of everything, just looking at it and saying a, a bit like they look at Hampstead Heath yeah, and say, Michael, "Wish we could build houses Michael, on, wish we could build houses on the Heath Michael, and on Hyde Park." Michael, look at the way in which the government has just actually Ofcom has allowed ITV, Channel Four, and Channel Five to renew their licences on very benign terms, hardly any change at all for the next 10 years. If you stand back, you could say that the government probably doesn't really want the BBC to be fundamentally fractured or undermined. It wants it to continue more or less, but with a, with a smaller amount of the total market. Well, it wants, it wants competition, just as it does in the NHS. It says all these people benefit from uh, competition, from being pushed hard by rivals. And as, as I think Matt said a moment ago, ITV fell away, and now it's back. And that's good, and it's, I guess, good for everybody. Maggie, how much do you care about the BBC? Would you go to jail for it? Um, I probably would, because I do think it's an enormously important civilising institution. But at the same time, I feel deeply, deeply alarmed about people who are poor, unable to pay the licence fee, being sent to prison. And I I, I would support a move towards a civil crime. Matt, in a word? I think uh, loading another two, I think they assume that there will be less people paying licence fees. That will be another 200 million for the BBC to find. And I think some people in the government see that with glee as another way. It's a very populist thing to, to announce. And at the same time, it gives the BBC a bit of a kick in. Right, OK. I'm not sure I would. I, m- I might wear a tag for a while. <laughs> Uh, if I did, it would have to be one of those cushy jails that they have with telly and everything. Oh, the anyway, BBC would have a cushy jail for people like you, Hugh. That's very nice of you, Mike. Thank you very much. Coincidentally, that you're going to leave us there, but thanks for your contribution. And then he was gone. All right, let's move on. Some other stories from the media world this week. Channel 4 News has removed a Vox Pop video shot in Brixton from its website after it was discovered four out of five of the interviewees worked for Liberty, a youth-focused marketing agency. Matt, these Vox Pops, we've all had to do them. Kind of rite of passage, really. Was this a schoolboy error? Everyone hates doing them. Uh, People don't pay enough attention. Uh, They're generally aiming for a certain uh, response that that fits in with the narrative of of what you do. And yeah, you can get get caught out with it. Maggie, uh, was the reporter Jordan Jarrett Bryan just having a bad day, do you think? Or is, I don't know, is is that whole genre a bit hackneyed now? (laughs) 
Well, actually, I, I know I have met um, some of the Liberty people um, that were supposedly this, this marketing agency where he went, uh, I think, to for uh, some nice quotes. I think there are two problems, really. Uh, it was obviously having to be done very, very fast and uh, to camera and, and presumably immediately sent back to the studio. So I think he was a, a journalist short of time. And I think, uh, yes, I have been there. I have been on the, the, the sort of wet pavement trying to buttonhole commuters as they rush off asking them about something or the other. Certainly, I, I, I have a degree of sympathy. It just shows, actually, though, when, when you think about a program like Gogglebox, real people responding and talking amusingly and to the point can actually be very good TV. And perhaps we ought to rethink uh, this kind of uh, news insert and, and give it a bit more status. Uh, I spoke to a radio producer once and he said uh, one of his banes of his life was creating promo trails for new breakfast shows mm. where you got people enthusiastic about these new breakfast shows. And I said, oh, how, how did you do that? And he goes, oh, I just go outside and I say to them, so uh, what do you think of Anton Deck? And they go, oh, they're brilliant. They're great. I love their personality. The way they work together, they're clearly good friends. Yep, I use that to promote my new breakfast show. Done. I used to get sent out for the BBC to do these Vox Pops and it was absolutely the bane of my life. So if it, if it went, I wouldn't shed a tear. Um, in other news, Getty Images are to make their vast collection of photography free to embed on the web. It's a massive about turn for the company, who have in the past not been afraid to litigate to protect their copyright. But many photographers are critical of the move. Jeff Moore, chair of the British Press Photographers Association, and my neighbour, by the way, told trade magazine BJP, the first ones to fall will be small and independent freelancers and smaller agencies that are relying on small internet sales. Matt, what are Getty up to? It's a bit of an about turn for them, isn't it? Well, Look at it this way. If you're a proper site, uh, you will have deals with photographic agencies and you'll be able to use their content. It's the next tier of websites who uh, do a bit of uh, save asing on uh, the pictures, a bit of Google image searching uh, to get it. Uh, and actually, that is potentially a lost opportunity for Getty. You know, if, if their stuff's going to be used anyway, and that taking legal action mainly is to just argue to your photographers that you are kind of taking action about this, um, it doesn't, doesn't really work for you. What's interesting about it, though, is because it's an embed from them, they have the opportunity to put advertising in there, to put links back to, to Getty. So there will be some value that they that they derive from it. I think the other thing that, that there's been an explosion of the other end are the cheaper photo agencies where um, rather than paying a few hundred pounds for a yeah. picture to use on a website, uh, it can be peer-to-peer and you're paying six, 10, 15, 20 pounds for, for more amateurs. You know, that's you know, the amateurization of what were traditional jobs is something that you know, the internet has come and done to lots of people. Uh, maybe they're just taking a stake in the ground and going, well, we need a slightly different model. Maggie, I know a lot of photographers. They're a stroppy mob. Um, can they do anything about this? I'm not sure they can because, um, I mean, this is actually an example of really how we just have to recognise reality and the changing media we're working in. Speaking of which, and closer to home, Janine Gibson has been appointed editor-in-chief of TheGuardian.com. Gibson currently runs The Guardian's US division. And Catherine Viner, who launched Guardian Australia, will now head the US team. Both of them totally brilliant, really talented, and do not cut that bit out, producer. Uh, Maggie, tread very carefully, as you saw I did. What do you make of these appointments? Well, clearly, um, Janine Gibson is the coming person. Uh, she uh, was a, a marvellously inspiring person to work for when she was editing Media Guardian, which is where really I, I first um, got to know her. She's full of energy, good sense, and has a very, very quick uh, mind. But what's really happened is surely the foray that she led into North America has, has really come off and the handling of really, really big, huge stories 
the Eric Snowden and the National Security Agency's activities um, have turned The Guardian into a global phenomenon. Matt, with your digital consultancy hat on, looking at the news landscape online, save us millions of pounds. What should we be doing next? For The Guardian, well, there's a question. Obviously, selling half share in a car a magazine slash website is a, a pretty good thing to do. Um, I think there's a, a thing about cost base. So The Guardian has not been a profitable organisation for quite a long time. It's no kind of great shift that it still uh, isn't one. Clearly the website in America and Australia and I'm sure in other territories over the next few years uh, has opportunities to grow uh, content and reach with audiences and that seems to have been a relatively successful thing to do. I think there's also something about taking a team outside of the mothership. Uh, you know, if the American team did the NSA stuff, actually finding those stories and trying to find your own way in those territories probably makes the core proposition stronger and better. And for, for Janine as well, doing all that work also means she gets to escape Matt Wells. So, you know, that's an extra bonus there. Or, or you know how to wound. But as I said, I think both of the people promoted are absolutely fabulous. Did I say that before? Yeah, OK. Uh, one last story. Mark Lawson is to leave Radio 4's Daily Arts programme after 16 years. Lawson has declined to give a reason for his exit, save for personal reasons. Maggie, you worked with Mark when he first made a name for himself, didn't you? Yes, I did. I was on the um, Independent when it launched, and he started off as a humble sort of TV writer just uh, doing previews and uh, very soon made his mark because he has a sort of omnivorous uh, appetite for both television and radio and great energy. And, of course, he is a terrific writer. I look to him when there's a story that I, or, or an event that needs a bit of background. For example, I remember when Alan Plater, the TV writer of Zedcars to, um, to Lewis, died. And you know that he will know exactly why Alan Plater mattered. And he can go back over 30 years, really, and, and, and remember exactly the things that a particular writer or performer did. He's also, I think, been very good recently on this issue really of whether bloggers and tweeters should undermine really interesting new programs. For example, Citizen Khan was one of the ones that um, he, he weighed in to defend. So I trust his judgment. I also know him to be a very hardworking and um, industrious person. So whatever the reasons, I think he'll probably will be missed uh, as a presenter there on, on front row. Finally, time for the media monkey quiz. Hello. Don't groan. Question one, what children's TV show has been the subject of a mother's complaint after her daughter started saying the F word? Ah, so pe- this Peppa will be Peppa Pig. Pig, yes. Oh, yes. first on the buzzer, Matt, there. Uh, yes, Peppa Pig, the misunderstanding came from mishearing the name The Rocking Gazelles as the... Uh, yeah. Can we say that? Fucking Gazelles. Yeah. yeah, we can. We are The Guardian. We will do that. Question two, complete this lineup: David Cameron, comedian Rob Delaney, and who? I've no oh, idea. Definitely silence. We've stumped you both. You don't know the answer. Patrick Stewart. The last two tweeted pictures imitating the Prime Minister's photo calling Barack Obama on the Ukraine crisis. Last question. Question three. Which Downton Abbey star was locked out of the BBC this week? Oh, Hugh Bonneville. Why so? Oh, because, I mean, this is wonderful. Um, he is in the next comedy from the writers and producers of 2012, the Olympic uh, spoof. And uh, he's starring in a, in a, in a, a new comedy, which is <laughs> based on the BBC and its um, machinations as it faces charter renewal. And um, although they were filming, and I suppose saving money, a new broadcasting house, um, he wasn't allowed to go through the doors that lead into the inner bowels of the of, of broadcasting house. Yeah, you're right. And I think you win then. That's uh, two oh, answers to one, I, I think. Do you know, had no 
nobody seems to have noticed that Olivia Colman doesn't seem to be in on this um, W1A uh, comedy. I think, I think she's going to be in like a bit of one episode. Oh, I hope so. Yes. Is she going to be similarly lovelorn? Well, that's what's worrying me, because what's going to happen if she isn't there? And what on earth is Hugh Bonington's character going to get up to? I think it's going to be an interesting series, W1A, uh, and whether it's got to tread that fine line between uh, making the BBC seem a, a warm place, even though it has bureaucracy, um, versus uh, a basket case and that and I'm hopeful that the former rather than the latter. Well, I think it's great that they can just do a whole series just taking the mickey out of themselves. I can't, I can't see them doing that on Sky. Or no, and I also hope they uh, refer to the youth channel occasionally. That would be quite <laughs> good too. That's it for now. My thanks to Matt Deegan and Maggie Brown. Time for Telly Now, and I'm joined by The Guardian's TV reviewer, Sam Wollaston. Sam, we were talking earlier about the BBC and its iPlayer exclusives, and there were some drama shorts on there now, Yeah, they launched, um, they launched three new dramas, original content, on the iPlayer. So they weren't on normal TV, they were just on the iPlayer. At the moment, it's just three 15-minute dramas sort of aimed at a kind of youth market, the sort of people who presumably are not so bothered about watching stuff when they go out. The dramas themselves, I, I didn't think were that brilliant. They were sort of slightly kind of studenty, twist at the end kind of stuff you normally get mm. from, from from film students. But just the fact that they were being launched on the iPlayer and not on on TV, uh, coupled with the news about BBC and going to be on online only, it sort of suggests it's it, this might be pointing the way to the television is going. So they were just road testing the model, really. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and it sort of asks all sorts of interesting questions about the license fee and things like that as well. I mean, you watch a lot of telly. We pay you to do it. Um, are you happy with the the direction of what you've heard this week? What about um, uh, BBC Three? Yeah and all that stuff online and uh, do you think that that will be accessible enough I mean th- th- these dramas weren't that great but uh, may- there may be other stuff that is good uh, and people won't see it I'm a bit old fashioned here I like to, I like telly I like to sit down and know when what's going out and look at my uh, listings and know it's going out at 8 o'clock and have my shared experience and talk about it the next morning with people at work but I'm in my 40s so can I test my theory with you actually very quickly yeah. that all of the convoluted titles on BBC3 are what did for it like my mother, my mother went out with a salmon, <laughs> and uh, you know the, the strange titles for the documentaries. Some of the documentaries were really good, but they still had these weird titles, which was very cle- seemed very clever. But when I the when the, M- yeah. when the MPs looked at them and said, "Why, why, why are we paying for this?" It certainly thing? gave the Daily Mail some ammunition, didn't it? Um, and it's a shame that it sort of came down to that because, uh, as I said last week, there were some really brilliant new comedies on BBC Three and. and uh, which I'll miss. Okay, well, let's talk about some exciting new stuff. Astronauts Live in Space. That began this week on Channel 4, hosted by Dermot O'Leary. Is he the right choice for that, do you think? I think that's a shame, actually, because it does it gives it a kind of reality feel to it. Um, uh, and, and actually, there's a really, really inter- incredibly interesting t- t- TV. Basically, you're, you're, we're inside the International Space Station watching these three astronauts go about their daily lives. It's gravity, basically, but without Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. And the, it's slightly less A-list, but um, it's nonetheless interesting for it. Uh, the Dermot the O'Leary thing, I, I, I do think that's a bit of a mistake because it gives it a sort of a, an X-factor feel to it. Is that it for him then now? Is he so typecast? I mean, we're, we're just never going to see him doing a panorama now. 
Well, maybe this is maybe this is it. Maybe he's going in a new direction. This is way and, back. And, yeah, he's he's uh, heading towards more serious documentaries, and this is his first dabble into it, perhaps. But so. you can't you can't see the past the X Factor with him. I watched it on a on a on a, pre, on a preview copy, which didn't actually have him in it, and so I was lucky enough not to see that. I was Dermot Free, my one, which means you can concentrate on what's going on in the space station, which is endlessly interesting even something like cleaning your teeth when you haven't got gravity and you've got toothbrushes flying through the air it's just brilliant it's not just kind of big brother dull then because big brother just winds on and on and there's not much happening and you can imagine in space it kind of, there isn't if you much take away gravity no drama from it, it becomes a lot it suddenly becomes a lot more even really pushing getting rid of taking the trash out they, they, they have to nudge the trash out through this uh this big bag of trash when it doesn't have gravity it becomes uh, immensely entertaining and then it goes into a capsule which is fired off back into the Earth's atmosphere where it burns up in a kind of uh, the most exciting incinerator in the world. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's basically Big Brother for pointy heads. Then, it, it, it? I, it, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> the only thing is, the only thing wrong with it is that uh, um, it's made by the astronauts and astronauts are kind of, you know, obviously not chosen for their personalities or, or filmmaking abilities. So it is a little bit, some of it is, I wanted, I had more questions that I wanted to know about, you know, yeah. What, how they felt and you know just some you know some of the nitty-gritty like going to the loo and stuff i wanted to know about that can you ask is there any facility via the website or via twitter are they in, is it well there is going to be a lot that it culminates in a live event and, and and there might be some potential for asking questions there. i, I don't I, i'm afraid i don't know okay well well that's real but let's talk drama shetland returned to the bbc one shetland's back yeah shetland um douglas henschel as inspector perry's on shetland bleak it's it's very much like those um nordic wild i guess you could call it celtic noir because we're in scotland a small community body found on the beach lots of very spectacular scenery a, a darkness about all the it. elements are there all, all, all the elements there from a novel by Anne cleves what do you think they're trying to give us with these dramas now what what is it that we look for that, that's made the, the the nordic noir so popular is it that bleakness or... Uh... I think it's a bit of bleakness, yeah, but it's also the... And w- what this doesn't have, that the Nordic Noir have, it doesn't have that kind of long-form storytelling because these are these are two-part dramas and you don't get... But what you get with The Bridge is you get an opportunity to kind of, you know, to tell a story very slowly over a long period of time and become completely involved in it. My one problem probably with, with Shetland is that, that there, there are only two parts, so there are kind of sh- shorter-form storytelling. But it does have the same kind of feel to it that um, the, the Killing and the Bridge had. OK, Sam, well, thanks for that. Um, you described it as bleak with terrible things going on. It sounds a bit like this place, really, doesn't it? Um, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Sam Wollaston, Maggie Brown, Matt Deegan and Michael White. Um, you can keep up with all the developments in media on theguardian.com forward slash media. My name's Hugh Muir. The producer was Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.